Is anybody like missing beach weather right now? Oh my goodness, don't worry, it'll be here like next week probably. Um, but I miss it so bad, and the ocean is amazing. Like it's the majority of our planet is ocean, and it's so beautiful and majestic, and I've had times where I just needed to get away, and I've just gone and either sat in my car where I could look at the ocean or go and just sit on the beach and be peaceful. Um, I, I love, this, this is how awesome the ocean is. I think it's, it's like... Uh, our number one source of tourism in North Carolina. So our state makes a ton of money for free on the ocean. And then, this is what's even better. Do you know what we get from the ocean as locals? Brit's Donuts. I mean, I, you might be like, I thought they were made out of donut. They're not made out of ocean. No, they're not. They're not. But you try to open a donut shop for three months a year in Bergal and see how that works out. But you put one down at Carolina Beach and it is going to sell donuts. And so that's beautiful. The ocean's awesome, uh, indisputably. It's, it's a beautiful thing. But here's the other thing that's also true. The ocean is powerful. Like, it's, it can be downright dangerous. Uh, moving here with very young kids, one of the first things I wanted my kids to know since we're going to be out there a lot is they need to know words like red flag days, <laughs> undertow, riptide. They need to understand this. They need to understand the safety measures that you need to take because the ocean is powerful. Just a few months ago, I don't know if you, you might have missed it, there was a little storm here called Florence. What powers hurricanes? The ocean so you go from like awesomeness, beauty, sitting on the beach, getting a suntan, and it's amazing. And on the other side, powerful. Have you ever been out on a boat when it started to get a little bit sketchy, a little bit edgy? I mean, the storm starts coming, the waves start rocking, maybe you got some rain coming down. I have. It's not fun. Your best bet is to get back. You need to get back. Uh, have you seen those TV shows? Um, I think there's one called Deadliest Catch. Is that the one where they go to like, they're like in Alaska or something and they're catching these giant crabs and they're like on a death mission for seafood is what they're doing. And th these waves are incredible and the ships that they're in are massive. But the power of the ocean uh, is matched to it. Throughout history, um, especially in ancient times, the sea, the ocean, held with it this really ominous like spooky thing. I mean, people, when you looked at the sea, and especially if you stood at the edge of a really big body of water that you couldn't see the other side, there were all kinds of myths and legends, and it was the place of sea monsters. We don't go any farther than we can still see land, because you know what happens if you go too far? You fall off the edge. Like, we don't know what's out there. It looks like an edge. I'm not going any farther than that. And so uh, th that's, that's the, the kind of ethos of the sea, of the ocean. And do you know why? Well, because some people tried to go out, and they got caught in storms. And bad things happened. Even uh, God's people that we read about in the Old Testament of the Bible, the Israelites, they viewed the sea as a place of danger, as a place to stay away from. They weren't a seafaring people. The Israelites didn't have a navy. They stayed close to land because to them in their culture, the sea was a dangerous and ominous and unsuspecting place. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't go. And as you read through the Old Testament of the Bible, the sea is often used as a metaphor for something scary or bad or ominous, evil, maybe being taken over by your enemies, like being swallowed by the sea or, or something to be feared. And so there's this picture there. The very first story in the Bible, the very first one kicks off this imagery. And I believe that as uh, the early readers would have understood this story, it painted a picture that taught them a lot about their God and the world they live in. And so as we get going this morning, let's take a picture, take a look at that. If you think back, if you've ever read Genesis chapter one, verse one, if you don't have it, grab a Bible, flip over there, or look on your phone. We're not gonna read that a lot today, but this is the picture we get of the world before creation. It says that darkness hovered over the waters of the deep. 
That sounds to me like a pretty scary ocean. It's the very first story in the Bible. But then something awesome happens, okay? God enters the narrative. And in verse two, this is what we get. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And it was light. And God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And so God does this really amazing thing. He inserts his presence into the nothingness. Many writers call it the chaos. The chaos before creation as just whatever it was that was going on and don't let it explode your mind to try to think about that because none of us were there. There's not a YouTube channel to explain it. It's just whatever happened before God created, he inserted his presence into that and he brought order. I love that the first thing he brings is light. We say at the end of every single service at our church, let's go shine light in dark places. I believe that that was Jesus' mission uh, when he came into the world and I think that's the mission that he has for his followers And that's the very first thing God does into the the chaos of the seas. Inserts his presence and brings light. But after that, he does some amazing things. You can read through the rest of the story. You know what he does? He separates the waters from the land. He creates habitable living space. And not only that, above the water and the land, he creates this expanse that we now call the sky. And you look at that, and into the chaos of the seas, God creates not only order, but a place where life can exist. Now, I don't want to over-allegorize the creation story. And again, that's not even where we're going this morning. But it's a picture of what happens when God inserts himself into the narrative. And can you imagine being these ancient people who are reading this text and they're hearing the story, and for them, the sea is a scary, dangerous, evil place, but their God is the God over the sea. Their God is the God who can bring dry land. Their God is the God who can create light and separate the light from the darkness. Their God uh, is the God who takes then after all of that and he creates man and woman and you know where he puts them? In a garden of complete order where everything they need is provided. That's the God we're here to worship today, guys. That's the God that these songs we just sang were to and about. It's the God I want to explore some today. Uh, We're continuing our series this week called With God. We're in week three, so if you've missed some of the stuff that we've been through before, I totally recommend that you go check out our podcast. I was made aware recently that, um, you know, maybe you don't know where to find it. Some people have a hard time. So uh, if you go to our website under resources, that'll lead you to where you can listen to our podcast. It's our weekly teaching every week right on our website. Or if you use any kind of podcast listener app on your phone or your computer or anything, I mean, I think that our feed gets fed to pretty much everyone. So Look up Venture Church, look for the logo that you see around here, our church logo, and you'll find us. Um, but over the last two weeks, we've kind of taken a little bit journey. We've been going through this book called With by a guy named Sky Jathani. I've recommended that book a few times. If you, if you want the reference again, let me know. I'd love to help you find it on Amazon or, or write it down for you. But in the first week, we discussed these four postures that we take towards God. And so that was the majority of the first week. So go back and listen to that. But in summary, it was a lot of times we approach God with one of these four postures. We want to relate with God in a life over God posture or a life under God posture or a life from God posture or a life for God posture. So those are our four prepositions, over, under, from, for, if you're in English class right now, all right? And in each of those, at the core of those postures as we relate to God, we find something. In the over God posture, we discover there are principles in this world that show us about God. And so if we can decipher the principles of God, 
We can live life. And in that posture, we find, eh, you don't really need God. If I can understand the mechanics of how the world works, I don't really need God. That's life over God. Life under God is, at the core of it all, I can discover the moral will of God. So if I can know what God wants from me to make him happy, ooh, if I am good enough, maybe God will bless me or maybe I'll be okay. So that's the life under God posture. Um, the, the life from God says, you know, I heard that God gives blessings. So I'm living a life and my whole goal in life is to receive the blessings of God. And if I can have the blessings of God in my life, I'm good. And the fourth one is the life for God posture, which is uh, at the core of life, we discover the mission of God. So if I can live on mission for God and go, go, go and do, do, do and find my purpose in life, then I can be on mission for God. So his divine will, his blessings, his principles, his mission, these are all good things. They're all attributes of God or gifts from God. But here's the danger. Here's the caution. If we live life looking just for one of those four things, we might accidentally miss the most important thing, which is God himself. I know his mission for my life, but I haven't saw his presence and it could go like that with all four of the postures. So Jathani suggests a fifth posture, and that's been a kind of the guide of us, of our weeks. What if instead of over, under, from, or for, what if we just seek to have life with God? That was the first week. The second week started the journey of what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Like, how do we actually discover what with God is? And so last week, we talked about this kind of first uh, step, which is faith. And you might remember the analogy from last week that kind of guided us. The analogy last week was of a trapeze artist who's doing acrobatics, and they're flying through the air. And the guy who saw this, uh, his name was Henri Nguyen, and he, and he was a theologian and a teacher. And he saw these trapeze artists uh, doing their thing through the sky, and it hit him. This is a beautiful picture of what faith looks like. It, faith is flying through life, but realizing that eventually someone's going to catch me. <laughs> so he, we used this kind of call phrase last week, trust the catcher. And so again, go back and listen to that. But life with God begins by understanding what does it mean to trust the catcher? You might be at that point in your life right now. You might be in the spot where you're like, yeah, that's where I'm stuck. I'm stuck looking for faith. And my advice to you is continue being in fellowship with us, uh, listen to the rest of this talk, come back next week, uh, ask questions, find someone who seems to have it together hunt me down. I'd love to talk with you or, or help plug you in with somebody. But that's kind of a big step to living with God, understanding faith. But there's more to that. There's so much more because there are these moments where we are flying through the air and you're like, okay, I understand eventually God's going to catch me. There is a catcher. But what do I do right now between the time I learned about God and the time he catches me? What do I do with this expanse of chaos, of stormy seas, of flying through the air going, oh my goodness, what is going on? What do I do? Okay, I'm gonna give you one word. Here's the word, hope. The word for this morning is hope. The word for last week was faith. The word for this morning is hope. And I wanna unpack what it means to live life with hope. Hope is a funny thing. It's weird. It's kind of hard to define. Uh, semantically, it sounds a lot like wishing, hoping and wishing. And sometimes I think even we confuse hope with wishful thinking. You've had wishful thinking, haven't you? When I was a kid, I grew up and every Christmas I would wish for a white Christmas. Oh, if it would just, if it would just snow. But I grew up in eastern North Carolina. I'm more likely to have like 75 degree Christmas with shorts and a t-shirt and we're playing football in the front yard. I might, if I'm lucky, like we might get like a white Thanksgiving, I mean a white uh, Valentine's Day, like a white St. Patrick's Day, and that's for like two days and then it's gone. That's Eastern North Carolina. That's wishful thinking. It's just, it's kind of cool. Wishful thinking is like a suspense of reality for a short amount of time. 
It might make me just feel a little bit, just think, that'd be cool if there was snow. And we do this kind of wishing thing in a lot of different ways. Maybe you make wishes at 3.33 or 12.12 or 5.55. You ever done that? You play that game, you see the clock, and it says all the same numbers, and so you get to make a wish, right? There's this thing where, like, you get an eyelash on your cheek. You ever done this one? Someone gets it off for you, and and what are they supposed to do? You blow it off. That is the weirdest thing. Don't touch my eyelashes. That's, that's for me and me alone. All right, but you blow it off and then and you, and you make a wish. Woo, it's good. Yay, I want a pony. Um, there's the one we do on our birthday. This is the one most people know about. Put candles on your cake. The older you are, the more in danger we are. Burn the house down, right? And uh, I turned 37 two weeks ago and uh, my, my kids brought me a cake with like, uh, I think it had like seven candles on it. I was like, that ain't enough. They're like, we didn't have enough candles. <laughs> Shut up. Um, but as so you blow out the candles, what do you do? You make a wish, you blow out the candles. Now, here's the trick about wishful thinking. You all know this is true, okay? After you make a wish, you can never what? Never tell anybody what your wish was. Why, or why not? It won't come true. Isn't that like the, the worst deal ever? Like, I had this really great idea, but I can't tell nobody. That stinks. Especially you need to tell your parents, the other ones with the money. Um, so I don't want to kill the magic of anybody's eyelashes this morning. So if, that's, if you're holding on to that, then that's, that's just you. Uh, but I think we all know that's, that's just kind of like a, a wishful game that we play. But hope is so much more. If you look it up in the dictionary, the two definitions aren't that different. But this morning what we're talking about is biblical hope. Hope from God. Hope that you can sink your teeth into. In his book, Sky Jathani, uh, again, he wrote the book called With that this series was inspired by. He's got a couple cool definitions for hope, and this is one that he gives. He says that hope is the opposite of despair. Mm. Now, it's hard to define hope, but it's easy to define despair. Despair is when you're like, I, I've hit the bottom, or I'm up against the wall. When you're in despair, this is what it means. I cannot visualize a way out of this. I'm stuck. I am stuck. Stuck might be another good word for that. Despair. Hope is the opposite of that. So if despair says there's no way out, what does hope say? There's a way out. There's a way out. The key to that, and we're, again, we're talking about biblical hope, is discovering that way out. And I want you to understand, we, last week we talked about faith. But this week we're talking about hope, and they are so intricately intertwined that you cannot separate the two. You cannot have faith, I mean, you cannot have hope without first understanding or seeking some faith. If you have a faith right now that you're like, "Mm, I feel like my faith's pretty weak, I don't want to rob you of your hope. Jesus teaches that even faith the size of a mustard seed can do great things, okay? So even if you've got a little bit of faith, even your faith is like, I think if I come to church one more time, it's going to help. I'm going to tell you, there's some faith in that. And we want to continue to help you grow your faith. But faith and hope, intricately intertwined. You can't separate the two. And so what I want to do this morning is we understand hope is we're going to read from the book of Hebrews out of the New Testament of the Bible. So grab a Bible if you got one. I want to let you know we got free Bibles we give away at this table over here by the door. Uh, if you want to, go grab one. Uh, but uh, you can also look it up on your phone or grab one before you leave today. We want to make sure everybody's got a good, readable version of the Bible. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6. And it's near the end of your New Testaments, uh, end of your English Bibles. 
Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Hebrews while you turn. The book of Hebrews is written kind of like a sermon. It's, in fact, it's like several sermons that kind of are in a series. So if you were to read from cover to cover of the book of Hebrews, you'd get some really good teaching, and it would feel like someone was explaining something to you. That's kind of the nature of the book of Hebrews. It was written to uh, Hebrew people. Hebrew is another word for a Jewish or Israelite person. And so the people that had originally heard these words, they had a really good working understanding of the Old Testament of the Bible, which is the section of the Bible before Jesus comes. It's the section of the Bible where God raises up a nation of people called the Israelites, and there's a bunch of history there. But all of the Old Testament points us like a funnel into the New Testament and teaches us about Jesus, okay? The people who first read this book knew a lot about the Old Testament. So as you read through the book of Hebrews, you might hit some, some roadblocks where you're like, hmm, that was a reference I did not understand. Uh, it's probably from the Old Testament, and here's my encouragement for you. Work through it, like Google it, call somebody. That's a great challenge to hit because it would help you kind of understand the Bible uh, more thoroughly. We're, we're gonna hit a couple of those this week and I'm not gonna dig deeply into all of those Old Testament references. I wanna connect the dots enough so we can understand. The cool thing is this, the more we understand the Old Testament, the more it helps us understand the hope we can have in Jesus, okay? So that's kind of the point that is being made. We're gonna be Hebrews chapter six today. And so uh, last thing is setting us up and then we'll dive in at verse nine if you're still finding it. Hebrews six, verse nine. The writer of Hebrews is a little bit irritated in this particular chapter. And he's writing to some Christians who just don't seem to get it. They're being kind of lazy in their faith. He's kind of telling them that they need to grow up. And he specifically is saying, listen, you need to have more faith because you know better. You have seen other people get through things. And, and these people, apparently, they're on the verge of giving up. They're on the verge of giving up on their faith. And he says, listen, don't give up. Think about the people who have come before you. Think about what you already know, and let's build it out. And so then when we get to verse 9, that's what he just came out of, kind of reprimanding them, but now he's going to build them back up, okay? Verse 9, let's read together. Uh, starting in Hebrews 6, verse 9. He says, even though we speak like this, dear friends, like even though we just kind of slapped you around a little bit, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. Because God is not unjust, he will not forget your work and the love that you've shown him as you've helped him, uh, helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what was promised. And so right here, we see this connection between faith and hope, but the writer comes in and says, listen, you can grow in your faith. By the way, for someone to challenge you to grow in your faith is not a bad thing. A lot of preachers or Bible teachers will regularly apologize for quote unquote stepping on people's toes. Um, and I don't think it's right to come up and like just like slap people with a Bible and just push them out the door. Um, Honestly, a good teacher is going to step on their own toes as often as they step on someone else's. But this writer is basically saying, listen, we're not just saying this stuff so you feel bad about yourself. We're saying this because we want you to be able to grow. We want you to be able to be stronger in your faith. And he says this, uh, there are some people who have come before you, and they have been some great examples of what it means to live in faith. God took care of them. Remember, trust the catcher. These are people who have come before you, and they've been caught. And he uses this word in verse 11, hope. Here's the verse again. So that what you hope for may be truly realized. Can you imagine getting what you hope for? Maybe you've experienced that a few times in your life. Isn't it a beautiful thing? That's what we have faith in, that one day we'll get that. 
And hope is the, the mindset that carries us through the air as we're flying to the catcher. Faith is knowing that God will catch you. But hope is a feeling of joy that you can experience even when things aren't perfect. Even when things maybe hurt a little bit. My family takes uh, road trips a lot. We travel a lot. My, my in-laws live a couple hours up out of town with my parents. We also travel to go on vacation. Uh, di- different reasons, right? And a lot of times, my wife and I will find ourselves driving back home late at night. Uh, the kids are asleep in the back or they're grumpy in the back seat. Okay, so it's late at night. And we're coming down to I-40, which is the longest, world, the longest road in the entire world. If you've ever been on I-40 late at night, anybody with me on that? And, and you're just having this one thought. How much farther is it? And you know what your exit number is? And you look at the exit that you passed, and you're like, oh my goodness, we're never going to get home tonight. And so, so one of us will normally say, and I'm going to call her out, it's always my wife, but um, one of us will normally say, I just want to get home and get in my own bed. <laughs> you ever been there, and you're driving, and you're just like, I got to get home. Uh, now, we had fun on our trip, but we are not necessarily having fun anymore, okay? We're just in limbo until we get home. But there's something to hope in. You know what it is? My bed. <laughs> my bed is waiting for me with my pillow and my blanket and my windows with the shades closed, and I'm going to sleep when I get home. Now, I, that's a shallow, like, surface-level illustration, but that's hope. We can sit in that car for two more hours, maybe be miserable through it, but be like, but I got a bed waiting for me at home. The writer of Hebrews goes on and he says in verse 13, and he gives a real example better than my car driving analogy. Verse 13, he said, well, when God made his promise to Abraham, so we're going back to the Old Testament. This is one of those Old Testament references. Abraham was the father of all of the Jewish nation. Okay, so before there were any Jews, there was just Abraham. And then eventually the whole family grows out of that. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he, God, swore by himself. Can you imagine that? Like you go into the court, the judge is like, okay, you got a witness? Nah, man, I don't need a witness. I just swear by myself. <laughs> but God did that. He's like, well, there's nobody higher than me. Verse 14, he said, this is God says this to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Between verse 14 and verse 15 is about 50 years of Abraham flying through the air waiting for God to catch him. So let's not just throw this away like, yeah, he had to wait till Friday for Amazon to get here. No, Abraham is walking through wilderness for decades, putting up with all kinds of garbage. But God says, listen, this is, this is what will carry you. You ready for this? God says, I promise. Some of us have been burned by promises. Someone promised you something and they let you down. God's track record is perfect. He always keeps his promises. The story that we're talking about about Abraham is in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to go back and look at it this week. But God comes to Abraham in his old age. Abraham has no children, so no heirs. There's no nation being born out of Abraham. As far as they know, he and his wife can't have children because they've probably tried and they don't have any. And God says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And in the moment, Abraham's like, um, yeah, right. How? Do you know how old I am? But God says, I promise. And then we can look back on Abraham's life and know that God showed up. He ponied up. He kept his promise. 
it's important to see that the reason Abraham was to have hope was because God's promises were real. And because of some experiences that Abraham had, God gave him some, a couple of moments where he could build faith, trust in God. Abraham said, okay, I, I'm, I'm gonna trust you. Verse 16, he said, people swear by someone greater than themselves. And that oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all agreements. Can we just leave that up there for a minute? Because I want to tell you a little bit of a story. Some of you have experienced this. Anybody ever been married before? Okay, you stood, I, I officiate a lot of weddings. And so this is, this is what I often do. I'll stand with a couple and we're in front of their friends and their family and everybody. And, and they make a bunch of promises to each other. I love you forever till death do us part and all this stuff. And they make all these promises and they say it in front of their grandma and they say it in front of their, their boss and they say it in front of God and they say it in front of me. And so at the end of the service, I say, all right, based on these promises, you said it in front of your family, you said it in front of your friends, you said it in front of God, you said it in front of me. And by the power vested in me by the state of North Carolina, I now pronounce you man and wife. By the way, if you're here today and you're engaged, I did not just marry you. You still need to carry on with what you plan, all right? This is not official. But I made, I made an oath. You made an oath, right? And then I took that oath, I heard it, and I put it to the, the highest authorities we have access to. God was there if you came in a marriage that was, was God-centered. So you believed in that authority. Your family and your friends are high authority in your life, right? And then by the government that I get to represent when I sign a paper, and then we sign a deal, and you got your witnesses, your matron of honor, your high school roommate, I mean, your college roommate and everybody, they sign it, and it's official. This is a legally binding contract, and that's why when you want to end a marriage, you got to go to court. And so God says this, you know, people swear by someone greater than themselves, who did he swear by? Himself, because there's no greater power. And he says, the oath confirms what is said because it'll put an end to all arguments. So if someone wants to come to me a few weeks later and be like, you know what, we decided we're not married. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. You're married as you can be because <laughs> you made an oath. The oath is there to put an end to the argument. And so when we hit these roadblocks in our life and people say, God is not there for you, God is not taking care of you, you can say, no, 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 no. There have been oaths made by God, by the highest powers available, and it's going to put an end to the arguments. And it takes some digging, and it takes some understanding to get there. But that's the truth. And God wants us, wants to make his promises as strong as he can so that we can have faith. Look at verse 17. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the hearts of what was promised, to the heirs, sorry, to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Remember, we're talking about the oath he made to Abraham right now. We're gonna to get to me and you in just a second, like really soon in just a couple of verses. God did so, so that, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. God made these promises so that we could have hope. The promises he made to Abraham and then the people after him and the people after him and the people after them and the people after them. All of those promises line up so that we can have hope. And then the verse 19 is coming up. This is the verse I want you to hold on to with both hands and both legs and just put your fingers in your ears and go la, 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 la when the storms of this world come because this verse 19 is going to hit you right where you need it. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. You ever feel like you're just floating? And God said, listen, I want to give you something solid to hold on to. The hope is, I promise. And I've never let anybody down yet. And I'm going to come through for you. But you've got to have faith. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Okay, we're entering into some more of that Old Testament language again. This is the place where uh, the Jewish people in their temple had a, a special area set up within the temple. It was called the holiest place, or the holy of holies, and that was where the presence of God dwelt, okay? And so uh, there's, this, there's this curtain there, and, and, and the presence of God is just behind the curtain, okay? And, and, and man, that was where the people sought to be in the presence of God, with God is what we're talking about this series. Verse 20 says, where our forerunner, Jesus has entered on our behalf. So Jesus has gone into this holy place. In other words, Jesus being God in the flesh, he's been in the presence of God. And Jesus himself has become our high priest, more Old Testament language. And he references this guy named Melchizedek that you can read up on if you want to later. But the whole point is this, you wanna have hope. You wanna be anchored to something that's not gonna float away from you. Abraham's a good story. But let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus was God who put on flesh. He came into the inner sanctuary area, this place where God's presence dwells because he is God in the flesh. And he came back out and says, okay, I got a plan for you. And here's my promise for you. If you put your trust in me, I will deliver you from your sin. I will reconnect you with God. I will help you put the broken pieces of your life back together. I will give you purpose. And then the other four parts of, parts of those other postures, I will help you discover my divine will. I will help you understand my principles. I will help you have my blessings. I will give you a purpose and a mission. Instead of seeking those as the end goal, instead we get to be part of that inner sanctuary with Jesus as our anchor. Oh my goodness, get me excited. The point that God, the point is God made a promise to Abraham, an oath, and he kept that promise. And that was the hope that got Abraham through those decades as he flew through the air. But in the same way, he made a bigger promise to us. That's what the story of Jesus is about. That God loved the world so much that he came to be with us as a human. And that he gave his own life to cover the penalty for our sin, which is what separates us from God. And then by his own power rose from the dead. And that if we believe in that and we focus our life on that, we'll be eternally changed, eternally blessed, eternally given purpose. You can trust the catcher. And day by day, that takes on new meaning as we learn to live in it. Verse 19, it says it all. It's just that first sentence. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. I love to do some boating. Uh, my dad's got a boat, and so um, uh, we go out with my mom and dad. Most, most boating seasons, from as soon as it's warm enough to be outside all the way through the summer, and uh, we got a lot of funny stories about anchors in my family. We, I mean, literally, there are like four or five stories about anchors because we have some really weird luck with our anchors. Uh, my favorite one probably is one year my dad needed a new anchor. The one he had was too small for the boat he had gotten. And so for Christmas, Lindsay and I bought him a new anchor. And so it's, you know, it's December. He gets an anchor. Yay. Of course, we live in eastern North Carolina. We probably could have gone out like today. But he held on to it and he put it in the boat. And then spring came around. He's like, hey, I'm taking the boat out this weekend. You guys want to come out? Let's go. So we get in the boat and we're like, and then this is the moment. So if you've ever been out, like we were in the Buckhorn Reservoir. Um, my parents lived near Wilson, North Carolina. So we're up in this, this reservoir and, and we want to get out and swim a little bit. And so I got the new anchor, man. I'm ready. So I pick it up and I go to heave it. And one, two, and I go to toss it. And as I toss it, the carabiner on the rope breaks. It's a little clippy thing that you hold your keys with. <laughs> Blunk. Sinks to the bottom of the reservoir. Immediately, I'm like, oh, shoot. I just dove at the spot where it hit. <laughs> Trying to, like, I'm imagining the trajectory. If I'm an anchor, where am I going? Water's like 15 feet deep. I did not find that anchor, man. It's like mud that you could put your elbow deep in. I didn't hardly get to the bottom very often. I came back up like, oh, man. Okay, so that's, that's not a good anchor. That's, uh, 
You typically want the rope tied to the anchor. And I tell that story to make, to make a, really, a really good point. Um, so often, the things that we try to anchor our life on are not tethered very well. And we put our hope in, if this boyfriend or girlfriend works out, man, whoo, I'm set. Carabiner breaks. Just ask somebody. Put your hope in the degree you got, man. I got all this highfalutin education and $70,000 worth of debt to prove it. And then that market falls apart and you don't have a job anymore. Your own good looks or your own charisma. And you know that's going to wear out. And time after time, whether it's our money or our influence or whatever we got going on in our life, we anchor ourselves to this stuff and the rope just doesn't hold. Or the floor that it's set on is just not strong enough and it slides along. And guess what happens? When the storms of life come, you're just bobbing around in the sea. King David writes in the Old Testament, this is Psalm chapter 69. We're just going to read the first three verses. Um, He's having a bad day when he writes this. He says, save me. Oh, God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for God. You been there? He just flooded. I want want you to know something. When you feel despair, it is okay to talk about it. David says, the water's come up to my neck. I've been there. Have you been there? But listen to how he ends Psalm chapter 69, verse 34. He says, but let the heavens and earth praise him. The seas and all that move in them praise him. For God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. That's the region where David lived. The people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Did you see verse 34? That the heaven and earth and even the sea praise God. Isn't it interesting that the very thing that David thought he was drowning in, he turns back around and says, look, even that can bring glory to God. Even the seas that are up to my neck. You fast forward to the New Testament. This is the time where Jesus is on earth. To Matthew chapter 8, he's in this boat with his disciples, but a storm comes, and it gets crazy. And in verse 25, Matthew 8, 25, the disciples went and woke him up, and they said, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And I love Jesus' response in this real storm. He says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? So then he got up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Did I mention that when God inserts himself into chaos, he brings order. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul. Uh, To find this anchor, I've got three questions I want us to ask ourselves. I don't know if these are the three best questions ever, I don't know, but number one, have I ordered my life around the promises of God? We cannot have hope if we don't understand what we've been promised. Second question, is he, Jesus, is he the ruler of my life? That's a big step. A lot of people, um, they might, I don't know, be baptized, quote unquote, into Christ. They get actually like physically baptized. But what they really mean is I'm going to attend church regularly. Again, we're missing the core. We're getting some of the blessings of God, which is his community and a service. But is he the ruler in my life? We talked about that some last week at the end too. And then the third question. Am I with other believers in giving and receiving hope? If you're not making any effort to be in community with people that can help you find that hope and to find that faith, you're not going to find it. Are you 
in community with other believers, and this is important, to give and receive hope. Are you in community with other believers? So those are three good questions. Let's just leave those up there for a minute. So we talked about faith, and we've talked about hope. And in faith and hope, both weeks, we talked a little bit about the dangers of life. Remember that last week? This week, we talked about the storms of life. But that is not what God has planned for us, dangers and storms. And he's not just trying to keep us barely out of those. God does have a mission for us. I found this quote this week that I love. It's by a guy named John Shedd. A ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships are built for. Man, God has so much for you beyond just hiding from the storms. We are created in the image of God. And he does have purpose for us. And when we can live a life in hope and in faith, we get to do the next thing, which is go into the world and make a difference in someone else's life. Maybe going from someone that's so worried about our anchor to someone who gets to kind of be a lighthouse and guide people safe to the harbor. That's life in hope. And that's life with God. Let's pray today.